What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Tech in Shanghai podcast, and Happy New Year! To get things kicked off in the new year, I sit down with another veteran of the China tech scene, Mr. T. R. Harrington. T. R. is the founder and CEO of Darwin Marketing, a company which describes itself interestingly, interestingly as a data company that does marketing. TR is also an angel investor, startup advisor, and mentor at China's top accelerator program, our buddies over at China Accelerator. And I'll warn you in advance, this was a long one. With someone as seasoned as TR, it's tough not to ask him a million questions and get his unique perspectives on how things have developed over the past 10 years or so that he's been here, and more importantly, where they might be headed. Lots of fascinating takes on the emerging Shanghai startup scene, the future of Chinese tech companies. His perspectives on how foreign tech giants should approach China after some notable failures, and some great advice for young entrepreneurs. Tr threw himself into the fire by coming to China with no plan, no friends, and no Mandarin skills, and yet has emerged a success who has built a business around doing what he loves. Entrepreneurs out there, take note. Without further ado, I give you Mr. Tr Harrington. Welcome to the Tech in Shanghai podcast, the Pearl of the Orient. Shanghai is the city of the future. All systems go full steam ahead. It never stops. Technology, innovation, ambition—it's everywhere. Join us as we explore this new world and talk to the people making it happen. The Tech in Shanghai podcast. The future is now. Tr, thanks for、uh, coming on the show today.、Um, Let's get things kicked off. Why don't you give me a brief history of of Darwin and how you found yourself in Shanghai in 2015? Sure.、Um, so,、uh, my story for for coming to China started in '94,、uh, where I had a college roommate who was sitting around in the dorms three months before we graduate, cracked a couple of beers, and he just dropped it on me that he was going to move to China in like August of '93,、wow. and that was、uh, that was a Very, very wild statement to be receiving, you know, in any context, especially in a cold dorm room in Boston. Especially in '93. Now it makes a bit more sense. Right, right. So,、um, yeah, I thought he was crazy. You know, the United States is in the middle of a recession. He didn't have a. He wasn't studying Chinese. He had like philosophy and finance, and I'm like, what are you going to do? And he's like, I don't know. I just want to have an adventure where I'm completely self-reliant, and、uh, and I'll figure it out when I get there. So. You know, I I went about my business in about I'd say like about eight months later,、um, probably around January or February. He, he sent a postcard. We're, we're still pre-internet, you know, in '94, and he's basically threw down the、uh, the gauntlet and said, "If you can get here, you know, in the beginning of June, I'll travel with both of you for like one month." And you always said you want to go places. You, you know, as far as I could see, you've been to Montreal and Tijuana, and that doesn't count. <laughs> and,、um, He has a he has a good sense of humor. So so this 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 good college buddy of mine was the first inspiration to come over in '94.、Um, you know, we were actually here for the fifth anniversary of Tianmen up in、uh, Beijing. So that was a don't go out day.、Um, but、uh, thankfully, it was very quiet.、Right. Um, and it was just it was crazy. It was just the, the only cars in the road were taxis because they were trying to get the Olympics.、Um, tons of bicycles, people walking everywhere.、Uh, I really struggled for like a week and a half until I. Got you know some mastery of the chopsticks. I was hungry, eating a lot of rice. Was there any Western food options back then? <clears throat> was KFC even here at that point? I think ninety three or ninety four. I think that there was the first KFC, but it was really hard to get to.、Right. It wasn't. It wasn't a convenient place to get to. I mean, Beijing was is still such a sprawl, but yeah, 
Um, yeah, there was very little. There were friendship stores, which are basically the stores where you can go in where they do have some Western stuff. Um, you'd have to go into, you know, the government-sponsored bookstores to find anything in English. Uh, it was, you know, it was wild, yeah. you know. And we did Beijing. We did the the, the slow trains down to like Nanjing. What like were everybody wearing? Hours. Were they was everyone wearing like standard issue clothing at that point? It or was, was that very um, colorless. Right. I would say it was very, you know, drab, you know, kind of styles of clothing, like yeah. black, white, gray, you know. Um, not not too much, not too much flair, right? Right. You know, at that point in time, um, and uh, yeah, I just remember it being. You know, I, I remember being approached by people, you know, coming up to me and like standing like like a foot away from me and just pointing the at poking me, you. yeah, like la why, la why, la why, right? Yeah. You know, you're the you're the foreigner, you're the outsider, yeah. and um, you know, my friend taught me how to say. Lao Nei, Lao Nei, Lao Nei, which is basically, <laughs> oh, you've been here for a while. And they all, you know, kind of laugh and look at you. Right. Um, but it was, yeah, it was, it was really, it was a, it was a very, you know, inspiring kind of experience, you know, to see a place that was, you know, in a completely st- different stage of development yeah. than where I'd come from, different language and different culture. And there's so much food, um, you know, which was amazing. So much food. So much food. Like, I mean, there wasn't as much, I'd say, dairy and, and meat in the diet. I right. couldn't find bread. That was a problem for like two weeks. I was like going, where's the bread? And yeah. they're like, there is no bread. And I'm yeah. like, what do you mean there's no bread? We do bread? rice here. <laughs> right? There's no cheese. You know, there, was, there was all these things. It was just like, wow. It's just massive adjustment. Yeah. Um, but, you know, but it was very flavorful. It was good. And, you know, we ended up going all the way down to uh, Shanghai. Um, he went back, and then I went by myself to Hangzhou, Suzhou. Um, and it was, you know, it was really, really interesting and much, much, much less developed. Like, was, was the Pearl Tower there in 94? The Pearl Tower Probably was the there. the only thing, right? That was the only thing. The rest of it was, was Marsh, you know, yeah, it was marshlands and cows. And, you know, wow. it was just, a, it was a dream. You've so, seen that photo, right? It was 1990 and... You yeah, know, 2011 or 12, and it's just flatland, and yeah. now the most densely, you know, skyscraper-packed area in the world, probably. It it happened really fast, actually. So I came back in the end of 2000 because a good friend from from Boston um, was opening up a cafe, right? Um, and that cafe has since gone on to be a restaurant empire called Emily Fresh. Oh wow. And that started in 2000. It started in the end of 2000. We were there for for the opening of the Element 79 Cafe, wow. um, which very few people will will, will know about. Uh, it was in tucked away in a Gold's Gym on Tongrenlu. Um, there was a Gold's Gym here. There used to be a Gold's <laughs> Gym, um, which which also didn't fare too well. But thankfully, Element made its way over to uh, the Shanghai Center in the Portman. And yeah, they've been just crushing it since then. Um, but. Uh, yeah, when I came back in, in 2000, the end of 2000, uh, we stayed through for, like, it was after Christmas, it was around New Year's. Um, they had built up a significant portion of Pudong by that point. I mean, it was shocking to me because mm-hmm. I'd spent the last five, six years or so. In, like, 94 when I left, I moved to San Francisco, and I got caught up in Silicon Valley, and I'm like, this change is just exploding around me, yeah. you know, around the Internet 1.0. And so I thought this was change, right? And I thought this is this is this is the epitome <laughs> of change, right? We're in the epicenter of the world. And then it came out to Shanghai, and I'm like, wow, this is change at scale, yeah. right? It's like infrastructure change, like physical topography change, yeah. you know, in the cityscape. And 
Um, I, one thing I, I recommend anybody who, who has people who come to Shanghai is take them to the Urban Planning Museum. Yeah. Because seeing that full-scale model of the city and the, how it's being developed and also where it came from is an amazing thing. I've heard it's wild, but you know, I've never been. Oh, I just, I've heard many recommendations. You, you should go. You, you gotta go, yeah. right? Because you've ever seen that picture, you'll see much more than that. And right. it's, it's really fascinating. But the speed with which they build. So I, I left after that trip and I came back again in the end of 2001 mm -hmm. to start studying the language. Um, and I was planning to apply to business school. And I moved uh, to Kunming. My college roommate helped me, you know, move down there. It was great because it was cheap and the weather was mild and yeah. nobody spoke English. So, you immerse, know, immerse. Yeah, I could immerse myself <laughs> in Shanghai, even in 2001, no way. Really? There was too many, too many foreigners for me. Really? Because it's like... In 2001, there was a lot of foreigners. There here. was enough foreigners. And, and I, since I had two guys now here from Boston, I was plugged into a network of people. Right. And it was a great to keep you insulated and comfortable. But, but, and, but yeah, yeah, it's like I can't practice my Chinese with you, right? You know, and and I need to I need to get to a certain level, otherwise I'm I'm not really going to be able to to do anything here, right? You know? So that that's why I moved down there, um, and it was basically fluent on Friday night, Saturday he found me a tutor, Sunday he found me an apartment, Sunday night he was gone, and I knew two words of Chinese, wow. and that was you know sink immersion, or, sink or swim, yeah, exactly. But, but I, I really feel like that's the best way, yeah. you know, at least it was the best way for me. And then, um, you know, 2001, 2002 was when the U.S. economy was like cratering, you know, the, the Web 1.0 was falling apart, you know, dot com, dot bomb. Right. And everybody was like flying for coverage in the business school. And so <laughs> I had laid out like a two-pronged plan. It's like, I'm going to study Chinese. And I'm going to apply to business school. And if I get into a school I really want to, then I'm going to go there. But otherwise, I'm just going to come back to Shanghai. Right. And so I was lucky, and I got into uh, the, the Darden School, University of Virginia, which uh, was a great school. Number one rated faculty year after year after year. Mm -hmm. And they have the most dynamic classroom. And I, I'm, I'm an interactive marketing guy, so I need interaction. Right. Like, I like conversation. Sure. I don't want to just listen to a lecture. And, and so that environment was fantastic, and it brought me back again to China and Shanghai in 2003 on exchange. Mm -hmm. And after being in, in a nice, sleepy Charlottesville for for about a year, um, I was ready for some more urban adventure. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I came back again, and it's like I had only been gone for like about nine months or so when I left. I left totally in June, different. and I came back, you know, the, actually it was a year. I came back the following like August. And it was like, again, all these new buildings and everything else was happening and, and, and seeing, you know, different friends I knew before and like how fast everything was going. Just shocking, you know, to, to, to see the speed, yeah. you know, with which this market, you know, moves. Yeah. And, uh, and then, you know, something very uh, unplanned and unexpected happens, you know, to me personally is that I met my future wife. Uh, while I was here and I'd been to Shanghai three or four times before uh -huh. and I'd never really made that connection um, and I didn't really expect I thought maybe there's just you know my expectations or my cultural you know you background to meet, a, a girl. to meet a girl yeah yeah and 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 then I met one and it was like an instant connection and you know that was that was it and so when I went back to school I pretty much told everybody I'm like yeah I'm moving back right after graduation and they're like what are you talking about 
you you don't you don't have a job. You you've got like a hundred thousand loans. Yeah. You know how much you have in the bank? I'm like three thousand dollars. Like you're, <laughs> you're you're nuts. And uh, but you know it's one of those things. It's um you you make decisions that aren't rational. Sure. Um, and then you just try to find a way to to make it so anyway. Right. Um, and and that was my experience. So I came in. And around June of 2004, and um, I had been working with a couple of people, uh, independent consulting uh, from, I did an exchange at Siebs, uh, mm -hmm. uh, and, and so we, we, we did a couple of consulting projects, but it, you know, it didn't really pay that much, but I was more just trying to figure out where in the market would somebody like me fit. And so from you know, roughly 95, 96 to about 2001, I was in San Francisco, Silicon Valley, doing interactive marketing, digital marketing, figuring out how all of this new media right. could be adapted to communications, right? Um, everything from like banners and email and e-commerce all the way through. And in China, in like 2004, it was still just just banners. It was like, you know, Sina and Sohu and portals. Right. Um, and act, but actually, they, they they were beginning a transformation because you know when when the internet 1.0 crashed in the U.S. and eventually it came over to China, like all the online advertising kind of crashed, and so CNSO who were actually in danger of like delisting until they found the mobile phone and they started doing wireless value added services, right? right? And so this is like 2003. Or so when these guys catch on to this and they start selling ringtones and games and all these other things like on the phones. Right. And I'm like, this is where the revolution is going to happen next. What what was the the mobile and internet landscape at that time? Because I'm, I'm sure we'll get into what it's like now and it's come right. a long, long way. But having had the dot-com 1.0, internet 1.0 yeah. in the U.S. and in other parts of the world, around 2003, 2004, like post you know, bubble burst. Yeah. What was the internet situation here? Was it very, I mean, it sounds like it was pretty rudimentary. Well, it's just, yeah, it was, it was, um, they weren't doing really e-commerce hadn't, hadn't started. Right. Um, and, and therefore it was, you know, there wasn't a lot of measuring, you know, what was happening. It's like, okay, I'm going to buy an ad on Cena and I'm up on the front page and I go grab my boss and I bring him in the room and I point to the computer and say, there's my ad. Right. And that's my job you know, as the marketing director, right? Right. Very, very different, you know, than the background I came from where everything was data driven and measurable and all the way through to some sort of like action. Right. right, right. And so in that particular ecosystem, a person with my background is basically very low value. Right. Right. To put it mildly. And there was probably two companies at that time who I could have gone to work for. One was Alibaba. But in all honesty, going from Shanghai to Hangzhou at that point was not a fast commute. Right. It was really slow. Do you ever kick yourself for that, no. that one? No, because, I mean, I came here for a person. Right. right? I came here for, for, for something, you know, beyond, you know, what my, my career was. And what uh, was, at, at, in 2004, was Alibaba strictly like this wholesale buying platform? It was very focused. In two, basically, the, by the end of 2004 is when everything started to change, right? Right, But but beginning, say, the end of 2003, it was purely B2B, right? Right, And then in 2004, this is when they started to move the market. They, you know, what we had is you had Alibaba go into the C2C, right, the customer-to-customer e-commerce, which yeah. is the eBay style. 
Yeah. Right. Was this Taobao or was it not? This was Taobao. An earlier version of Taobao. Yeah. So they so they start Taobao really in 2004, right? Or it may have been the end of 2003, but you know it didn't really start to catch until the end of 2004. Yeah. Right. And Alipay together with it. And this is also one of the very important, I think, takeaways I got early on watching this development uh-huh. uh, as an American, you know, as somebody who's like looking at the titans of American, you know, internet like Yahoo and like Google, you know, and eBay. These guys were, you know, Amazon was still smaller right. than eBay at that point. So it was basically like eBay and Yahoo and then Google and Amazon were sort of behind them. But they both came into this market and they both really just got hammered. Yeah. I mean, big time hammered. Such is the story with so many of these Western tech companies. Yeah. And, um, but you know, what, what made a a huge impact on me personally and also career wise was that with the introduction of Alipay, right, which Alibaba could bring into the market, Jack's, or I just say his, his approach to things is beg for forgiveness, not ask for permission. Right. So he was strategy in China, which is which right? which in China almost you almost have, you have to do to, it, yeah. right? Because the market moves too fast, you know, to get. But eBay is a huge global company, mm-hmm. you know, who would be subject to a lot of legal liability if they didn't get the permission first. Right. So PayPal was stuck in the you know trying to the get foreign permission. companies can't move like the the domestic it's very ones, hard. right? They don't have the connections. They don't know the landscape as well. They don't know what they can and can't do and get away with and. It's 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 very 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 difficult, yeah. you know, to do so, um, and and that's one of the reasons that probably the strategies that that international companies take, you know, have started to change and, and need to change yeah. if they're going to be able to be competitive in this market. But with the introduction of that, with with a payment platform, and by the end of two thousand four, we had a hundred million online users for the internet. Uh-huh. Right now, you have the pillars of e-commerce. Yeah. Right. Critical mass, you have platforms. It wasn't, you know, you also had Dong Dong in that time, right? And a few others, but it was really Dong Dong, Taobao, eBay, and most importantly, Alipay. Uh Because without that, it was all cash transactions, right? right? Can't really measure cash very well. It's hard, Uh right? But if it's an e-payment platform, you can measure from, from, you know, page view, right? Or banner view to click, right? From search, click, all the way through to purchase, Right. And that's where somebody with my background has, you know, more Sneak experience and more value. Yeah. yeah, because I know how to go in and look at the data and say, okay, the gr- the greatest lesson that I learned early on was that language is cultural or, or data is language and cultural neutral. I don't even have to know what a keyword is to tell you exactly what its economic value is because I can track it from the beginning to the end. Right. And that was something that I knew how to do. Right. I'd been doing that, you know, and doing English, but my insight was that, like, Hey, it doesn't matter as long as I have a code on here, as long as I tag it correctly, uh-huh. then I can actually track its performance. And that was kind of like, you know, the initial insight to why I thought I could do something here. Right. It surprises I, I didn't I didn't exactly know when Taobao got its start, whether it was two thousand four, two thousand five, but I've often quoted I, I saw a infographic one time or something and it was the singles day uh revenue of Taobao. <clears throat> Or Alibaba um, since 2009 up to like today, right? And even in 2009, I think their single day revenue, if I'm not mistaken, was only 10 million dollars. It was tiny, right? So, which is, and this year it was 24 billion, I believe. Yeah. You know, I, and I saw this really interesting graph where 
it plotted Alibaba's singles day revenue in, in, in a chart compared to the annual revenue of some of the largest companies around the world, Viacom, yeah. Coca-Cola, all these huge ones. And it was one day was, was more than the annual revenue of some of the biggest companies in the world. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. I mean, and also I think it's important to keep in context that, you know, sometimes those numbers are, are, are looking at the, the turnover mm-hmm. or like the sales volume versus the revenue itself. Mm-hmm. Because Alibaba's making a cut on that turnover. Right. Not, right. Sure. Right. Sure. Yeah. Um, but still, it's, 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 it's incredible. They created a shopping holiday. Yeah. Where else in the world can you create a shopping holiday? Right? <laughs> it's just, it's, it's, you know, it boggles the mind. Everybody wishes they could do that. Yeah. Right? Amazon should be thinking, hmm, how can we create a shopping holiday? Yeah. Right? You know? So, yeah, it's, it is, it's amazing how fast, you know, e-commerce moves here and how, and how much room there is yet to go yeah. in terms of like the development for the next five to 10 years. Well, there's still only what, 600 million internet users, about right? 630, I think. So, yeah. you know, about half, about half the population. Yeah. Um, and it's, and I get, you can often hearing that story kind of puts it in context because you can, even though it's by all other international standards, it's moving extremely fast, right? You know, 10 million in, in one day in 2009 to what it is today. But hearing you say talk about how it launched in 2004 and 2005 and how it was very rudimentary then, I mean, we're, we're 12 years or we're, we're, we're several years on at this point, right? And yeah. you can be tricked into thinking that it's like an overnight, like Alibaba is just this overnight success. Um, but as with so many things in, in, in this industry, and we talk about this on the show all the time. Yeah. You, you you hear about these big new these funding rounds these IPOs and you think like wow you know what is you know it happened so fast I mean just these guys nailed it overnight but it's a lot of years of of putting putting the work in and laying the tracks down and figuring out how best to maneuver and of course now it, it's a foregone conclusion and now just look around and look how people spend and look how you know how vigorously people shop online here yeah. with their mobile devices. Yeah. I mean, there's not even a huge legacy of, of of laptops or personal computers. I mean, it's they skipped that part and it, it went to mobile, right? Yeah, it's true. Yeah. It's true. So, when did you get into Darwin Marketing? Give me, so, give, bring me yeah. up to speed on that. So, so, uh, so, 2004 to 2005, you know, was when you know I was still trying to figure things out, but I saw I saw what was happening with with, with Alibaba. Towards the end of, I would say, <clears throat> 2005, I basically uh, wrote a business plan for a very simple pay-for-performance business uh-huh. um, called, uh, it's an industry called affiliate marketing. <clears throat> mm-hmm. And the reason I, I, I did this, because I, I knew the earliest ones in like the U.S. So Amazon had its affiliates program. Right, which is basically you put a link on your blog, somebody goes through, they buy the book, I give you fifteen percent. Right. It's very straightforward. It's pure pay for performance. Why did I think this would work well in China? Very low trust society. You know, I'm trying to sell you advertising. Oh, you send me a click. What is that? I don't know what that is. I'm not paying for that. I can manufacture those. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But but you know, when you start saying, I'm gonna give you sales, right, and you just give me a percentage after mm-hmm. you you collect those sales now that's actually a pretty easy thing to sell right. to most brands you know big or small and on the other side you have to build up you know a lot of these different websites 
who are going to be your partners who are going to show the ads, mm-hmm. right? So most of it was basically involved in recruiting the websites and recruiting the bands, uh, the brands who had all the different deals, what they were selling and so on and so forth. And it was a very, very, uh, I would say, scalable uh, technology-driven type of business, mm-hmm. uh, but the technology didn't have to be like super proprietary or anything else. I, I called called up one of my ex-colleagues in, in the U.S. who is now CTO of LinkShare, who at that point was the biggest, you know, I would say affiliate marketing company in the world. Uh-huh. They eventually got bought by Rakuten, right, the Japanese uh, company. And I said, Bill, I, I need help. I'm thinking about building this company in China. You know, tell me about the technology side. What should I do? And he's like, look, it's all about the publishers and the brands. He's like, the technology just needs to be solid at tracking. He's like, find something shrink racked off the shelf and localize it. And, you know, pretty much that's what I did. I sat down, I wrote the product, you know, requirements, um, step by step all the way through, you know, following, you know, what I'd seen. And, um, and then uh, I, I recruited somebody uh, from eBay China. Um, who, you know, was uh, vetted by both the GM from Taiwan, the the chief strategy officer for North Asia mm-hmm. uh, at eBay, and a, a company called EachNet, which eBay had acquired. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this, this gentleman was working there. And so all three of these people, the guy who was CFO of EachNet was also in my circle in Shanghai. So they all kind of vetted him. Mm-hmm. And I convinced him, you know, that this crazy American guy, you know, um, who, you know, wanted to build this business that, you know, he should leave, you know, eBay. And, and eBay at that point was already hurting pretty significantly from Taobao. Right. So by the, you know, by Q, the end of Q3, beginning of Q4, like September, October of 2005, eBay China was suffering and Taobao was just screaming ahead. Right. So I think most of the people inside could see the writing on the wall, which is also like why when I said, oh, I've got two options, I can go work for eBay and Alibaba, really people inside of eBay were saying, no, you don't want to come here. Really? It's like, yeah, plain nose is pointing down. Right. We don't see any way that we can pull it They're up. still here though, right? In principle. We had, we had, we had, we had, one, of the, we had one of their people on the, on the show a little while back. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're here, but let's, let's say their ambition before yeah. was to be the, the right. e-commerce platform for China. Now they just want to be at the table, right? Yeah, I'd say, you know, now they just, I think, if, I, if I'm them, I'm looking at it as an R&D center. Really? Yeah, and figuring out all the different ways that China is doing e-commerce and what can I quickly learn and apply back to U.S. and other markets. Really? Yeah, that's well, yeah. an interesting take. Oh, for sure. I think that's happening in multiple industries now. Because China is leading the way in, China in speak, that way, in, yeah, in those yeah. regards, and how they conduct e-commerce and the strategies they use and that kind of stuff? Yes, because of, because as you said, it almost skipped a generation, right? right? Um, one thing is that like internet access didn't really, even though you have 600 million people, a number of those people, especially four or five years ago, were accessing the internet purely from their phone yeah, because they couldn't afford a computer. Right. Right. So, and they, they didn't have smartphones, but they were actually using like, you know, like the Nokia sex phones. Yeah. yeah with, yeah. with WAP, you know, like wireless access, access protocols. And, you know, it's, uh, you know, they were actually surfing the internet, you know, on very, very, very low speeds, right. but they were doing everything via mobile and their mobile device was their main computer. And it still is. Right. If so you, the if industry you move further grew up west. around that, right? Yeah. So because, because of that condition, 
right? And the only other place it could possibly compare in terms of scale is India, but they're much further behind, right. you know, than China. Is that China actually on the mobile side is really the, the, the global leader, right. right? It's just a scale issue. Which is becoming more and more evident now when you have platforms like WeChat and, you know, the different e-commerce things that are coming on. I mean, now it's, it's, it's getting super obvious. If you missed it before, right. you know, you probably saw it a long time ago. But for those observers that missed it before, I mean, it's right. kind of hard to miss now, right? Yeah, absolutely. The, I mean, this is also a huge reason why Tencent is, is such a dominant player in games globally. Right. I mean, they have so many people just in China, yeah. you know, and so many of them are playing games that even a fraction of that market who's paying, yeah. you know, to upgrade and da 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 I mean, it's massive. I, so, would, I was going to wait to get into this, but we might as well dive in right now. Yeah. But I, I'm always interested, and you obviously have a unique perspective because you've worked with a lot of these companies. But, you know, the as you just mentioned, a company like Tencent or really any homegrown company here, if they hit it here, they've got an enormous homogenous market with increasingly large disposable income, right? So yep. bigger than anywhere else in the world, obviously. So if you have a startup here, if you have a company here and you hit it and you, you hit your stride with your market and your product and all that kind of stuff, I mean, the, the success you could have is, is enormous. Yeah. And so there's that, but that also sets you up for, gives you a really good foundation for whatever global ambitions and expansion you might have, right? Versus if you're in London and you have a, you know, a gaming startup as well, well, your domestic market is, you know, in the tens of millions of people. And then if you want to go to France or Germany, the U.S., you got to deal with many, you know, maybe user preferences, regulatory issues, blah, 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 mm. all that kind of stuff. But my question is, as, if, you, if you, on the flip side, as a, as a foreign company, you know, as a U.S. company trying to enter China, as so many have. Yeah. You can't ignore this market anymore because, you, you, you know, you're sitting around, you're looking at, you know, your global ambitions and there's this huge red spot on the map that represents an enormous user base and tons of potential, you know, revenue. Yeah. You just can't ignore it. But it's also, you know, there's someone said it recently on the show, but the the... the the road to success in China is littered with the corpses of, you know, foreign <laughs> tech giants, right? The people that, you know, you just cannot resist the urge. But how do you come in and compete with the, the, the homegrown guys who just know the users better, have been hitting the ground for longer, have, you know, better connections in general, making business easier to conduct? What's your take? Yeah, it's, I mean, there's been a lot of mistakes, um, and that's natural when when people have, I would say, uh, maybe too much hubris, or they're or they're 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 too uh, they're too aggressive, right. you know, because they you know they they, they want to just jump in and immediately they want to they want to make a big impression. Yeah. Um, and you know, I, I'm you know again, I come from a, <clears throat> a startup perspective, so you know, I approach things fail fast on a small scale. Mm -hmm. Most of the problems have been failing fast on a Big very scale. large scale, yeah. right? And sometimes not failing fast enough, um, yeah. in all honesty. But, <clears throat> you know, it used to be when you came in, you had the joint venture. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, you know, in certain industries, that's still required. But, you know, largely in the internet industry, if you're not involved in finance, insurance, you know, industries that are more, you know, part of other industries are not pure online plays. Mm -hmm. 
Um, you know, you still you still need to do so. You still have a lot of regulatory restrictions, but most internet businesses, you know, do not. Now, the restrictions in the internet businesses are really around content. How do you filter your content? How do you manage your content? Which is why there's no YouTube, which is why there's no Facebook, right? Right. Which is why, you know, sometimes Instagram is blocked, sometimes it's not. Right, which in right? fairness means that those guys aren't competing on a level playing field. Obviously, the home, got, you know, there's a lot of home field advantage here, right? Because they, these guys are, have been pushed out or, you know, there's been restrictions placed on them. Right. Or whatever. So, so, so the perfect example for this discussion is the Google example, right? Because Google came in and... Um, it was, you know, it was a very challenging decision at the top mm -hmm. from what I hear, right? Um, that, you know, I heard that amongst the three, it was a split vote, a two to one vote right. in terms of coming between Sergey, Eric, um, and Larry. Yeah. And, uh, so there, you know, there was even some dissension at the very, very top about this decision because of the, you know, you know, the, the, the need to filter, the search results in China if they wanted to come here, mm -hmm. right? So that's that's like one thing that you just have to understand. If you come here, if you want to come to this market, you need to understand what it is that you are going to be allowed to do right. and what it is you're not going yeah. to be allowed to do, right? Because it's different. Yeah. It's and not that's an interesting point because then it means what product or service or solution are you providing with those restrictions in place or with whatever considerations or restrictions you have to deal with? Right. Like, what then do you have? Because you don't have Facebook as you have Facebook in the right. U.S. then, right? Right, right. And there's, there's other reasons for Facebook also being sure, like sure. a challenge. But in particular, the Google example is interesting because at, at its essence, it's a search engine very much like Baidu, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, what Google uh, didn't have was all the different years of doing you know, the Asian font language, mm -hmm. they were a little bit slower to get into Asia. They went to Europe first, which made sense, mm -hmm. you know, because the market size was bigger and more immediate. And so moving into Asia has been challenging, not just in China, in Korea, just in nowhere, right? In Japan, up until recently, they did a, they did a partnership with SoftBank and Yahoo. So now they power that, but before they were kind of further away. Right. But China, China, they were actually making progress in spite of some of the decisions that they were making, which weren't necessarily the right ones, mm -hmm. right? They, they decided to set up the headquarter in Shanghai originally, which great for me. I'm here. I can easily do business with, with Google headquarters. However, it's a regulated amazing. industry yeah. and the regulated bodies are all based in Beijing yeah. and you need to be close to them. Because you're going to have problems. Google, Baidu has problems sometimes too. It's right. not just limited to the local companies. Now, are you going to be looked at more closely as an international company? Probably. Yeah. Right? You know, are you going to be given exactly the same freedoms as the local companies do something? Probably not. Right. Right? But it's not, it's not a one zero. It's not, they get all the access and you get none. Mm -hmm. Right? It's just that they understand how things get done in China. You may or may not understand that. Yeah. Once you understand that, then you have to make a decision about what you're comfortable doing. Yeah. Because you may not be comfortable doing things exactly the way things get done in China. Yeah. Right? You know, those are some cultural, you know, what we sometimes in the West look at as ethics. But in China, they don't consider it to be unethical to do business in the way that they do it. Right. Right? And so this is all of those, <clears throat> I'd say, parameters or considerations that need to go into your decision-making mm -hmm. process. I advise, if you're coming in now, 
is to almost create a local entity from scratch. Right. As, as crazy as that sounds, try to create a local company. Interesting. Right. Yeah. Um, if you try to bring in through through the international, you're going to be. It's going to take a long time mm-hmm. to get the approval. Years, maybe. You know. You know. It could be months. Could be years, mm-hmm. depending on how sensitive your industry is. Um, if you try to acquire a local company, the chance that the that the I would say the culture of the local company and the culture of the big company are going to be fit together is very low. Right. Um, I, you know, or, or find, you know, another thing is if you're going to start like a local company, find maybe people from your company who, who are native Chinese, right? Right. Who at some point want to go back and they would like to start their own company and fund them, Yeah. you know, and say, go build a business. But, you know, it's not going to be, you know, Intel's business. It's going to be your business, but we're going to be like an early stage investor in the business right. and maybe at a later point in time. You know, we may be able to ratchet up and, 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 and acquire you, and that could be like our way into the market. Yeah. And that allows the company, you know, from the very beginning to operate locally, yeah. to operate independently, you know, of these things. And, it, and it's a risk, mm-hmm. you know, for the parent company to just invest without having control. But from what I've seen, the perspective I've sat at, that seems to have much more success. Right than trying to have the command control, especially from outside. Just this monolith coming in, trying to be the same thing as they were in every other market, right? It, that doesn't seem like it, it can work in China. I mean, I'm sure there's a few examples, but I think there's probably a hell of a lot more of it not working where the Chinese guys have several competitive advantages. And in general, I think the Chinese consumer in the internet category prefers homegrown solutions that have been designed for them and with their user preferences in mind and all that kind of stuff. But I've never heard that uh, that recommendation or perspective before, but it makes a lot of sense where you can kind of, as, as the larger companies come in under the radar, you know, and get some, you know, use the, the, the capital you have behind you and the experience and talent, but do it under a different brand and with a different team and with a more local team. That's another mistake so many people have made, right? right? They come in and they, they they take their you know their top guys from around the world, managing directors, whatever, and they put them in top positions in China, and yeah, you just can't. Yeah, it's tough it, to make a go of it that it, way, right? It, di- it didn't work very well. It's a, it didn't work very well for eBay, right? When they tried to do that, uh, it it certainly didn't work more recently when Groupon tried to do that, right? Right. Both of those were were disasters. Where yeah. like there was so much lost value in like eighteen to twenty four months. Yeah. Like eBay spent three hundred thirty million to acquire EachNet, and eighteen months later they went from ninety percent share to to a minority of share right. against Taobao. That's and there was a lot of reasons for that, from management to moving all the servers yeah. back to the U.S. slowed the website down in e-commerce. That's death. Yeah. You know you can't do that. But again. I, I think there's so many accomplished Chinese uh, around the world, yeah. right? Who, you know, a lot of them are going to U.S. universities, graduating, sure. going to work for blue chip American technology companies. But in the back of their mind, you know, some of them, not all, but some of them have this idea that they want to go back. Sure. And a lot you of know, them they, have, right? right. I'm sure and they you know back. a lot of them. Really right. highly educated, great experience returning Chinese. And now they're doing amazing things here. Ex- We've had exactly. a bunch of them on the show. Exactly. Yeah. And, so, and so they know your culture. They right. already understand your culture. If they've worked for you for like four or five years, they, they got the culture. Yeah. Right? Find them, identify them, you know, try to help them start a company 
you know, back in China. Yeah. Back they also then. have enough of the Western culture to communicate with exactly. your management team. Right, right? right. You yeah. trust them. You know them. They were part of like the company's culture, family, or whatever. Right, right. And now they're going to take you into a market, maybe at a very small, and you know, you do it with like five or ten of them. Maybe one of them successful. Yeah. You know, if you're lucky, maybe two or three. Right. Right. But those are all such early stage investments. You, you don't risk. It's much much cheaper than spending three hundred thirty million. Right. On, and then you know, and then an having incumbent and having them go away. Basically. Yeah. And then really, yeah. You know, and you get it. You know, the other thing is, if you're purely foreign from a PR perspective, you can get attacked. Right. Very heavily. It's tough. Yeah. Right. Which is one of the reasons Darwin has, even though there's me, the rest of the staff is all Chinese. Right. Right. And it's been like that from the very beginning because I learned very on. Being a foreign brand is not necessarily favorable in this industry. Right. You know, f- if, in this industry, yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly. If you're local in this industry, you know, or pure local people, you know, because they will attack you as not understanding the market. Right. Right. Not understanding the way things get you don't done. Know in how China. we do things here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So it's, it's, for me, I always felt like it was Im- imperative that Darwin was really, you know, I may be a foreigner and I bring certain international or Western you know, perspectives to the company, which is good to match, say, with the Western brands we work with, but our team is operationally, is all local. Right. Right. And that's because you need a local team who understands the market to get things done to connect to consumers. Yeah. This is actually a great segue into another thing I wanted to discuss mm-hmm. with you, with you, which is the startup culture here. Yeah. Um, because you mentioned that, and I really not hadn't given it much thought before, but perhaps this is a trend we might see unfolding further from now into the future where these larger tech companies do have to take a sneakier, more, you know, different approach than they have in the past. And I'm I'm wondering what kind of impact that'll have on the startup community here. You know, if these big tech companies take that approach and say, okay, well, let's fund a bunch of companies in the industry that we want to get a foothold in and hopefully we can, one of them will hit and that's how we yeah. get our presence here. You've done some mentoring and some advising yep. with uh, China Accelerator, right? Which is a, yep. a, probably the, the leading accelerator program here in China. It's pretty evident over the last you know, three, four years how much the startup culture ecosystem has grown here, right? From, from basically nil to now having co-working spaces popping up all over yep. the city and foreign and local uh, startup founders and people in that community coming here to start businesses and to work on really innovative things. So why don't you give me your take on the startup community in, in Shanghai? Okay. And um, I'll ask you what, what your involvement has been. Sure. So it's, um, it's, it's really interesting to see the development um, and especially the sentiment around startups in, in Shanghai mm. over the last three to four years, as you point out, because, you know, the first six, seven years that I was doing this, it wasn't a glamorous thing right. to be a part of a startup, right? The glow of Silicon Valley kind of imploded, right. you know, and then it took a while for it to sort of come back, you know, again. And when we started, when I started Darwin in like 2005, 2006, you know, the, the glow was definitely not here in Shanghai. Yeah. Um, and, and Steve actually, who Steve yeah. Mushra, who we had on the show, actually commented because he was at Tudo at yeah. several years ago, and and he was saying, you know, it wasn't like the startup culture in Silicon Valley. It wasn't like you know foosball tables and sushi yeah. at the cafeteria. It was the laoban and the work and oh yeah, that's yeah, what yeah. it was like right. right. And that's also like more like uh, you know the, the culture. Sure, I think of the of the of the leaders. 
of this the original the original startups in China were very traditional yes. style yeah. Chinese leadership, right? It was very hierarchical. Right. Right? Top boss, underbosses, everybody else. Right. Right? Do what and you're told. Exactly. Don't it. ask questions. Don't in it, don't don't get creative. Don't come up with right. things. We'll decide what needs to be done. You exactly, do it, right? exactly, yeah. right. The assumption is is from the top is like you know is like a monarchy, right? You know they're in control and everybody else is part of their fiefdom. And I think the next generation of of the entrepreneurs that I've seen in Shanghai and elsewhere in China mm -hmm. is is different, is more open in terms of the culture, is more sharing of uh, you know the leadership. Um, and you know, I'd say what I've seen in Shanghai is you, like you, you pointed out, co-working spaces have exploded. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, uh, government, you know, is subsidizing, you know, support right, right. You know, yeah. providing, you know, uh, around Fudan or Tongji mm -hmm. or, or some of the, you know, the elite universities here in Shanghai. Yeah. Um, you know, you're seeing that, uh, uh, kids or younger younger people are more easily able to convince their parents that it's okay for them to do this yeah. and you know one of the companies that i mentor i mean the the kid was had had the best background you could possibly have he was at university of chicago and econ you know arguably number one program in the world investment banking internship at goldman right. you know and he walks away to do a startup. And, you know, his parents just think he's absolutely <laughs> insane, yeah. right? This is four or five years ago. I, I think that that sentiment is starting to shift yeah. a little bit, right? Um, but, again, I think most of the startups in Shanghai are, are, are more closely related to the industries in Shanghai. Mm -hmm. So you see more financial-related startups in Shanghai for sure. Yeah. Um, you also see more advertising you know, and agency-related startups in Shanghai. Right. Um, and you also see fashion, cosmetics. These are like, you know, the industries that are more core to Shanghai as a, you know, sort of like sure. a cosmopolitan kind of city. But the the other side is if you look more broadly, you know, as China is, everybody talks about Zhongwansan, right, and Haidian up uh -huh. in Beijing. Like this is the tech hub yeah. where where everything is like supposedly exploding but i always point out i think certain places are overlooked because certainly yes beijing critical mass huge right. great universities for technology and all these different tech companies you know from baidu uh to sohu right are are all based you know in beijing yeah. however hangzhou just because of alibaba is throwing up so many small companies right now. Yeah. And the same thing is happening down in Shenzhen and Guangzhou mm -hmm. with Tencent. So because of the nature of the internet in China being so highly concentrated around the BAT, Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, that these are the places really where the startup scene is percolating, I think, the most. And yeah. people have a tendency to overemphasize Beijing. They're like, oh, this is the, the Silicon Valley of China. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, but that's, you know, in, in the Silicon Valley, you have Facebook, you have Google, you have Intel, you have Cisco, you have everything. Mm. I mean, it's like Seattle's got Amazon. Right. Right. And but almost everything else is highly concentrated in Silicon Valley yeah. here. In reality, 
it's a little bit more spread out, right? Right, but but people, I don't I don't think they recognize it yet. I think, I mean, you, as you said earlier, I mean these these the, the big companies need to have headquarters in Beijing for you know government regulatory government reasons, right? Yeah. But Beijing, as many will agree with me, is not a very sexy city. You know, it's it's big, it's spread out, the air is terrible, it's it's drab. Where Shanghai has that like buzz, that kind yeah. of energy, that modern cosmopolitan kind of tech feeling. And I think that does play a factor. We, you may not get as many huge companies setting up their headquarters here, but I think from a startup perspective, especially, you can really start to feel that percolating and it's an easy city to get around and easy city, as we were saying earlier, to meet people, to make those connections. And I can see all those factors coming together to really develop a very vibrant community here. But another thing I wanted to mention is you know, we talked about these returning Chinese that, that are bringing culture, experience, education with them. And the the local, you know, the Chinese founders that I'm familiar with that have started companies here, they actually are bringing a lot of the the kind of well-known Silicon Valley tech culture to their enterprises in China to a certain degree. Yeah. Um, and what I'm what I'm noticing is that it's really changing how employees look at at, at where they want to work mm. in, in China. You know, whereas before it was like maybe you get with an SOE yeah. uh, or with a multi a big multinational, but now they're seeing like, oh, you know, I can go to work and my boss is not like a top down kind of asshole sort of character. They're very collaborative. Yeah, the office is cool. My colleagues are are kind of funky. We don't have to dress a certain way. We don't have to talk a certain way. Yeah, you know, and that culture is starting to emerge here, and it's those people that are coming back and bringing that that I think are leading the charge there, and that too I think will support the rapid growth of this industry. You know, yeah. that combined with all the press that a lot of these major Chinese tech companies are getting now internationally, like Alibaba and Tencent and, and Baidu. I mean, like so many things in China, where things seem like they're dormant for so long. I think we're just in that period now where it's becoming evident that this is going to take off in a very, very big way. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, like company culture is 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 really critical for any startup. Yeah. Um, you know, we you know, especially early days. You know, when we were more of like a fifteen to like you know thirty people kind of startup. When you're competing against very large you know, in this case, multinationals, right. you know, on the advertising side, the agency side, or against, say, like the media side, like the Baidu's, the Alibaba, the Tencent for yeah. talent, how do you compete? You I can't, I can't, something else I can't, I can't pay yeah. the same amount and I can't compete on, on brand awareness or brand recognition. So we would try to compete more often on the culture right. and, and, and say the environment, mm -hmm. you know, to your point, you know, this is not, you know, a command culture, you know, type of environment. I'm going to give you a goal and a target. I'm not going to tell you how to achieve that. I will check in with you to mm -hmm. make sure you're, you're making progress on that. Yeah. Um, but I expect you to fail at some level mm -hmm. and failure here it's like if you're not failing then you're not trying hard enough yeah you know and again i'm not going to put you in a position to fail on a big scale mm -hmm. because that would be bad for me mm -hmm. but i am going to expect you to try and fail on a small scale so you can learn what works and what doesn't fast yeah 
you know and it's a super novel like concept idea for a lot of you know perhaps your staff and and, and other people are working in in similar co companies with similar culture around china because it's such a departure from what maybe they have been used to but yeah. as you're saying i think that's what why they like it so much and that could be the reason why they stay with a company that maybe the salary is a bit less but you know they get to have this sort of culture around them yeah i mean it's you know it's like uh the, the salary is one piece it's uh and the, and the culture i think is 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 unique or relatively unique mm -hmm. uh people who leave remark that it's not you know they miss the culture right right you know they, sometimes they have an opportunity that's that's a really big opportunity and you know in those cases they'll be like you know you should do it right you know i can't pay you that that kind of you know compensation it just doesn't make sense for me yeah but the platform that you're going into looks pretty good and as long as you i say hire your boss i know it's a, a random you know, kind of thing to say, but I'm like, it's so important that this person's looking out for you. Right. You know, after they decide to hire you, you need to hire them. Right. Means that you need to have like a reverse interview and say, okay, these are all the things that I want. Yeah. This is what I want to achieve. I, are, are you going to be committed to help me get this experience mm -hmm. so that I can move forward? I mean, I will help you check off all your boxes, but you're my boxes. Right. You know, right. I, I always try to encourage the staff to think that way because otherwise you just don't know. Yeah, right. If you advice. don't have that commitment up front from the other side, yeah. you know, so, um, but yeah, we, you know, I'd say we, we're very flexible with uh, maternity leave. Mm -hmm. um, we, we find that that's also an underserved market mm -hmm. is that the female market, you know, sometimes can be treated uh, quite strictly. Mm -hmm. um, and, and in Shanghai, you know, there's a lot of females who, who want to work, you know, and who are quite capable. Yeah. Right. And so we're we, we try to be more flexible, you know, with that group. And mm -hmm. we find almost inevitably people who go on maternity leave come back. Right. right? Which I don't think is that common. Right. You know, it's a it's it's a big change for a lot of different people. Um, we you know, we, we try to award uh, extra days of vacation. I'm, I'm very high on productivity. I'm very low on working until like 11 o'clock at night because uh -huh. productivity levels fall off very fast right. after six o'clock. Yeah. And you know, those Saturday work days in China, oh, they're terrible. <laughs> Absolutely. Nobody wants to work on the weekend. Right. I don't even care if they got the extra day before. And it's like, make them come in, show up, check your email. If there's nothing burning, go home. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, it just, we're, we're, we're trying to find the environment that, you know, we, again, focus on the goals, right? Right. Are you achieving the targets for the clients? Right. Are you, are you, are you meeting your learning goals? Right. So you're developing so you can move upwards, you know, in terms of your responsibilities and so on and so forth. Yeah. You know, if you're doing those things, I don't really care that much how many days you're here, you know, and right. as long as you're here by like a certain hour in the morning when the clients start calling, yeah, it's fine. You know, sure. like, I'm not going to sit there and go 8 o'clock, 8.30, 9 o'clock. Fine. You got to be here by 10. That's my limit. Yeah. Right? But otherwise, be flexible. And you try to create an environment where people are connected personally, not just professionally. Right. This is also something I brought. I think I, I brought this with me from Silicon Valley. And I don't know if it was limited to Silicon Valley. But because when I would work in, uh, in interactive marketing, I had have to work with both designers and, and technology people. And each side would be adamant 
that they couldn't possibly compromise whatsoever on their vision. Right. But I would have to find a way into the middle right. between these two really creative groups. And, and before I started working, you know, in the internet, I didn't think of technology as a creative area, but now I see how creative it is. Sure. Right. And, and I think one of the ways that I was able to do that was that I always try to find a personal connection that I could begin my conversations with. Mm -hmm. I, you know, if you come to somebody in the work environment and the first thing that comes out of your mouth is, have you Where's given me those TPS report? reports? <laughs> right. You know, and, uh, you know, that's a very transactional communication right. and people get very worn down by those transactional communications because most people's communications are personalized at some level, yeah. right? There's some sort of personalized connection. So if I know that you have a kid, I'm always just like, how's your kid doing? Right. right? You know, how's pretty it? simple stuff, simple really, stuff, right? but, it but makes it just, a big difference. right. But it just, it just makes the, you know, the communication style a little bit, yeah. you know, less transactional yeah. and we don't want to be purely transactional because it just wears out. It wears out, you know, the way we are. So when you have that type of environment, you know, and we even encourage the staff to travel together, we'll like support them, give them some money so they can go take, you know, trips together or go out to meals together right. because anything that's encouraging personal experience together is creating ties mm -hmm. that makes them less likely to want to go. Right. And retention is the key. Yeah. Right. Especially amongst the people that you, you want to keep, you For know, sure. the more experience they get, the, the, the longer they've been there, the more offers are getting the better offers and so on and so forth. But you, you want to create an environment that you're going, the risk to leave is, is high because yeah. I'm giving up things that I like. You know, I'm paid relatively well, you know, almost market rate or at market rate. You know, we do try to pay market rates now, especially. Um, but you make it so that, you know, going to a new environment with a new boss, it's big risk, mm -hmm. you know, and, and you're happy. Yeah. Right? If you're happy, you don't want to go. It's interesting to, to observe how the, the, the workplace landscape is changing. All the things you just mentioned and, and other innovations and changes that people are adopting that employees are now demanding i mean it it's clear that there's a there's a transformation going on and it, it'll take some some jostling to figure out what really works as you said at the end of the day people have to get work done yeah They're, they they you want to retain staff for myriad different reasons but it is interesting to see and, and startups i guess kind of lead the way on this because they are so dynamic because they they are in the position they are in but figuring out how to to optimize all those things, how to optimize employee engagement, how to optimize employee productivity, and all those different things. And you know, it, I think we'll look back on the show up at nine, lock into your cubicle, punch away on your work, and leave at five or six. How arcane and 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 yeah. basic that will be viewed in in the not too distant future. I mean, many of us might view it as that now, but I well, think it'll be so, it'll be even more obvious in the future how just you know, ultimately inefficient that was and, and ineffective, you know, you, how, how much more you can get out of people and not only get out of in a pro productivity sense, but, you know, as you're saying, the culture you cre can creating and how happy and content employees can be doing work. You know, they don't, it doesn't have to be such a huge divide between work and what I like doing, you know, that yeah. I think that gap is beginning to close and it's, innovative companies, you know, like what you're doing and like different startups that are figuring out ways to narrow that gap so that everyone can be more satisfied and everyone can, can be more productive. 
But I know we're 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 running up towards the end of the show. I wanted to get your um, wanted you to tell me a bit about how and what you're you're advising uh, startups uh, sure. in Shanghai these days. So this this is great. This is this has actually been a very uh, important, I think, transition for me personally, from like a career standpoint, um, is to, to to get involved and mentor you know startups, the next generation of startups, and I think. For me, it sort of started organically, but it was like weird, like the confluence around it. So I got approached by Todd Embley at, at, at China Accelerator. Yeah, Todd's been on the show. Um, and uh, you know, uh, and I, you know, I knew some, I knew a bunch of the mentors who were in there, mm-hmm. and you know, just by association, you could see, wow, it's it's a, it's a high quality group of people, right. at, at least among the people that I knew. And then. You know, so he asked me, you know, to become a mentor um, last year, like in July or August around that time. Um, I, at, that, at that point, I was already in my second year of teaching entrepreneurial marketing at Siebes. Mm-hmm. So I'd been going there as a speaker, you know, talking on panels about what it was like to be an entrepreneur, a foreign entrepreneur, interactive marketing entrepreneur, all these different things. And I talked to, you know, the professors in charge of entrepreneurship and I'm like, you know, if, if anything ever opens up, you know, let me know. I'd love to do a class, like a proper, you know, 14, 14 class, you know, kind of section thing. Mm-hmm. And so I just finished my third year doing that. Cool. And that's slightly different from mentorship, but it's more along the lines of I'm trying to inspire people to be entrepreneurs because, you know, kind of what you and I were talking about before, I kind of feel like entrepreneurs are the way to change the world. Right. Right. You know, I feel like, you know, politics, you know, it used to be in the United States, like in the 1960s, you had the Kennedys, you had these guys who are coming in with like the space program and, you know, and and all these amazing ideas. But now I feel like so many of those ideas really come from startups. And and so that that was kind of like, you know, my theme for business school. And that's why I wanted to to teach it to other people as much as I could. And also the world is changing so fast that you can't really rely on politics anymore to change as fast as innovation and technology is happening, right? And one of the reasons you asked me why I even do this show, yeah. and one of the reasons is, and of course it's a cliche to say you want to change the world. I mean, not right. every startup has to change the, the world. You know, you can do whatever tickles your fancy. But one of the reasons why I, I like speaking with people like yourself is because there is a lot of, you know, messed up things going on in the world today. It's not a perfect place. But there's the group of people that notice that, and get really down about it and cry about it or protest about it or whatever. And I sympathize with them, of course. Right. But then there's another group of people that are just saying, okay, I'm going to, what, whatever pocket I'm interested in or passionate about, I'm going to just try to make that little one better. Yeah. A warm toilet, you know, a toilet yeah. seat, a marketing company, an e-commerce, whatever it is, you yeah. know, pick, pick your little corner. Yeah. But the attitude of, of the community that I appreciate so much is that it's people that are like, they they see problems and instead of doing anything you know negative about it complaining about it they just say well what can i do about it what can i fix about right. it and that's exactly to your point i think in this day and age you know politics is maybe becoming less and less relevant in terms of how 
our daily lives are structured and how we how we act in our daily lives. And I, I think they're struggling to keep up as well as the pace of innovation really accelerates. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, I'm not a very political person personally, right, right. you know, I'm, 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 a, I'm a pretty neutral type of person. But I just felt like, you know, when it was when, I, you know, I had to write those essays for business school, I was like 30, 30 plus years old. And it's like, you know, you think about how you're going to have the biggest impact in the world. And I really felt like, you know, that, that my parents' generation in the U.S. was like, you know, the way you change the world is through politics. Right. right? Yeah, yeah. Right, right. Do, exactly. Do those things. But I think that that shifted, you know, my generation, you know, and especially even for, for the next generation below me. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm 44. So there's people who are, you know, 24 out there who have even bigger ideas. But it's, it's, it's shifted where, you know you know, companies are really kind of the face of innovation and right. the face of change. And I think, you know, that's what people are inspired to be a part of. Yeah. So, so getting back, uh, shift back to, to, to the mentoring. So now mentoring four different companies mm -hmm. um, uh, and all of them, you know, sort of happened organically, you know, to me. Mm -hmm. um, uh, one of them, which I'm very passionate about is a, a, a water filtration company. That's a social enterprise. Mm -hmm. It's called Siyuan Water, and uh, the founder is the son of a of a company that was doing water filtration for municipal and for factories. But his idea was like, can we take this same product mm -hmm. and find a way uh, through consumer advocacy to get this into the hands and get this into the schools of like tier three, tier four right. schools where kids are literally every day drinking dirty water yeah. that that could be infecting them over a period of time. And in China, we all know pollution is an issue, yeah. right? You know, when you grow this fast, it's going to have downstream effects. And in this case, you know, the pollution is the downstream effect or one of them. Mm -hmm. Now, the air is obvious because you can look up and you can see, and there's so many apps to check this, but right. the water is much less obvious, but the pollution in the water is really not less. Right. And the fact that you are actively putting this into your body makes it even more dangerous. Yeah. Right. So I can't even imagine what it must be like out there because even in, in Shanghai, it's something that I would recommend, you know, coming from a health and wellness background that you, uh, you know, consider that you manage in some way. But I mean, God, what, what, what they're experiencing out where all the factories are and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it must be, yeah, it must be pretty, so, so pretty rough. It, 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 it is, I think it's, it's, it's an issue. And I, but I, the reason I'm very uh, passionate about doing it from a social enterprise perspective is that I think if you go fully, you know, uh, like not NGO, mm -hmm. right. You do something like Red Cross, yeah. right. There's, there's, there's just not a lot of trust here mm -hmm. and it's very hard to get those organizations going and they've had a lot of scandals. And so it's, it's not likely going to work that way. The government is very busy doing so many different things and mm -hmm. they're doing a lot of different things. Well, but they can't do everything well. You know, every government around the world needs some help from the from the from the you know the citizens to do things. Mm -hmm. If it's a it can, it's a social enterprise, it makes enough profit to fulfill its mission. Mm -hmm. It's not out to maximize its profit, but it's an, it sustains its ability to continue to fulfill its mission, which is to get water filters into every school in China. Right. Which is a great mission to have. Sure. Right? Yeah. You know, it's all of everybody cares about children. Mm -hmm. Everybody wants the next generation to be healthy and smart because they're going to be leading the country to the next level. So 
China's been very good to me. Mm-hmm. This is one of the things that I feel like if I can help this guy and this company, yeah. I can give something back, right? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> the and what 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 kind of things? I presume you advise them primarily on a, a marketing front. Is is that right? Yeah, primarily marketing. But so what would you? I mean, what kind of things would you be advising current startups on on yeah. that front? Well, I, I would say, so you asked me before, what do, we, what do, I, what do I tell startups, right. right? What do I advise them to do? Yeah. I'd say the, the most important thing in terms of advice I can give is say, I can tell you what not to do. Right. I'm not going to tell you what to do because you have to make those decisions, right? right? But I can tell you some mistakes that exactly. I've made. Exactly. I can just can say, avoid. look, I did this. <laughs> it was a really bad idea. And yeah. I suffered this, that, and the other thing. I'm like, whatever you do, don't be like me. Right. Right? You know, that's the number one thing. If somebody raises you know an issue right they're like okay well i'm thinking about doing this kind of like fundraising right uh, I'm, I'm at seed stage i'm at angel stage i'm at you know series a stage right. and these are the different things that i'm thinking about i mean i've got that experience you know going through multiple rounds of like financing mm-hmm. so i can sort of give me some feedback and say okay obviously things have changed from when i started doing it but still i did this and it was a really bad idea mm-hmm. whatever you do don't do that what is that thing well, come up so, so, specifically right, right. So, for so, financing. So, give, give me give me one because I know that's a, right. an issue a lot of people want to know about. Um, so <laughs> all right. So for instance, like one of one of my one of my mentees, you know, uh, had an offer, uh, you know, from a from a strategic investor, mm-hmm. right? And and they were struggling with with this offer because it was basically it wasn't even like an investment. It was it was an acquisition, acquisition. offer, right? And and I'm like, you know, I, I understand. Uh, this means huge amount to you and your family, right? And, you know, if you took this money, you could basically, you know, take care, you know, all those different things. You could take care of your, your early employees. Everybody would, would, would do pretty well. The, the downside of taking this offer, though, is will you be able to fulfill your goal and your mission if you move inside of this big company, mm-hmm. right? And if you are really mission-based, you know, or goal-based and not money-based, then you probably aren't going to be satisfied doing this. You can take the money, but you may be deeply unsatisfied, you know, and you will not enjoy the situation because you will go from like being a 20-person company to being part of a multi-billion dollar company where process is everything, right? And flexibility is minimal, right? And so, you know, I mean, I said, you know, you have to decide what's the right thing to do for you, mm-hmm. right? But these are the things you need to consider because I know what it looks like inside of those big companies. You're mm-hmm. a technology company. They don't get it. Right. They're not, they're not, they don't build technology, right? This is like a very large, you know, conglomerate, you right. know, on the, on the, on the media side, uh-huh. right? I'm like, if I thought, and, and I've had this conversation even internally, like with my own team, my own investors, if I thought that these companies really would, you know, continue to develop and innovate on the technology side, I would be ecstatic right. because I'd love to see that. But the reality is most of them don't. They license mm-hmm. most of the technology that they work with. So bringing it in-house, they don't even have, like, the people inside who are going to continue to foster that development moving forward. Right. And I'm like, if you are unhappy, you are wasting time. Never do anything that doesn't really make you passionate and happy. Now that's good advice. Right? You know, regardless you, of whatever carrots are dangling in front of you because it's kind of like it's a mirage, right? You yeah. think that carrot is going to be tasty and it's going to give you everything you want, 
But if you're not, if you don't have that internal fulfillment, that day-to-day satisfaction of coming in and just loving what you're doing, it's a matter of time, right? It's a matter Absolutely. of time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, the, you know, so, so, so they, they were like, they're a technology startup. They just, um, just completing their, their seed round now. Right. Um, so I'm very glad to see with that a different with investor. with a different with different investor right. who's 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 got great financial connections because he was a venture capitalist or right. you know arguably still is, mm-hmm. um, but but he makes tons of connections. I can help make connections. So he's got great people around him, mm-hmm. and the guy is like he's so committed, right? I mean he he literally he looked at that offer and he turned it down, right. and 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 I was really you know. I, you know, I totally understand the tension or the or the struggle, yeah. you know, in making that decision. But at the same time, I was very, very proud, you know, of him sure. that 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 he made that decision, and he's still very committed, like yeah. you know, to do this. He's he's still paying himself like five thousand Rambi a month, which is an incredible. You, you gotta love that when you see that though. When you see that he's commitment, paying, he's, paying, that he's definitely paying staff more, more yeah. multiple staff are being paid more, yeah. you know, than he is. He's committed. He's not just sitting there thinking about short term. You know, this, this is, this is a great example of some, a dynamic that I think has changed recently. And I want to get your take on this, but now I don't know what Apple's share price is doing at the no. moment, but arguably the most valuable company in the world. Yep. Right. Um, it's, I wonder often how that changes like the, the cognitive mental dynamic of young people working in the world today when for the last several hundred years, biggest companies in the world were resource extractors, yeah. you know, mining companies, oil yeah. companies, yeah. you know, banks of various yeah. kinds. And they carried like a very kind of ominous, negative, oppressive sort of aura, right? right. Whereas now the most valuable company in the world and many of the most valuable companies in the world are creative companies, mm. you know, where, where technology and art and creativity yep. and openness and nonconformity are the characteristics that define these companies. And I, I just, and, and as a result, the people at the heads of these companies and the ideals that these companies sort of stand for trickle down to, you know, your average employee as, the example, the high example. Yep. So people aren't trying to emulate the banker with the top hat and just trying to make money for the sake of money. Right. People are trying to emulate people that, regardless of the money involved, went after something because they were, you know, they dreamt about it. They were, it was, they have a creative drive for it. They just couldn't right. let it go. And uh, individuals like the one you're just describing, for me, really illustrate that. Where, where, and I'm not not pretending to know where that drive come from, but I, I just, I do wonder. That change in, in landscape and in, in sort of the largest companies in the world, how that trickles down to individuals like that in terms of maybe giving them more gusto or more direction when those decisions come, you know, come up when they say, you know, am I going strictly for the money play or am I just going to keep pushing in because I believe in this and because it allows me to be creative, allows me to express my passion, whatever. And I, mm. I, I, I well, what's your take on, on the fact that these, these large companies are now setting those sort of standards and norms for people? I mean, I think it's, uh, I mean, I, I think it's a great shift. Um, you know, certainly it's much more interesting to be a part of uh, the rebellion than the empire. Right. If we can put this into a Star Wars analogy with December Timely. 18th Timely. coming, <laughs> counting down. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, 
you know, Apple's a, a phenomenal story because, you know, it's, a, it's an, you know, if you have an iconic set of founders, mm-hmm. you know, in, in Wozniak and Jobs, um, you, you, you have somebody who, who believed beyond, you know, rationality, what was supposed to be done and what was right. Right. And, and, you know, he, always nonconformist, right, always he, the rebellion. Right. And in, in, involved, you know, with, with, <clears throat> with Pixar and then coming back and now leading the company. And I mean, just unbelievable it's story. It's, yeah. it, it is, it is. And, it, and it's, and it's, you know, it's, it's mythological, right. You know, now it's not even like something that, that sounds possible yeah. like in, in the real world, but, but yet here you are to your point, Apple is, you know, probably the, 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 the most valuable company in the world mm. and other companies like Facebook and Google, right. Who really promote this, this, this culture of innovation and creativity are, are are also getting huge, right? And that's also reflected here in China with Alibaba and Tencent and you know exactly. and Baidu, right? So, I think to me, like the best examples of, of of companies who who are doing something like this or have you know really gone after like a mission, I can't look further than Elon Musk. I mean, you know, uh, Tesla really trying to create you know people to be you know passionate about electric powered vehicles mm-hmm. right and instead of going the way that honda did it which was more it's very you know pragmatic one foot in one foot out it was totally a pragmatic you know right. kind of kind of thing i mean he went a completely different direction sports car yeah you know high end premium and but it, but in the back end a lot of this was built from the way i understood it was to give him enough volume so he could make those electric power cells mm-hmm. and make them affordable so that it could be pushed back down in the industry because the industry would not go fast enough in there. And he fundamentally wanted to change that. He's like, we have to do something, you know, to change the way we are burning through all of our natural resources. Yeah. Right. And SpaceX, you know, is, you know, you know, literally a moonshot, yeah. right? Yeah. Literally a moonshot. Companies talk about taking a moonshot and, and he builds a company that is literally, yeah. you know, a moonshot. And, you know, he bet the farm on these things multiple different times. Like, I mean, he took all, all the money that he had from PayPal, yeah, all the money that he made from that transaction, which was a lot of money. Yeah. And he put it all into these companies and he was literally borrowing money for rent. Yeah. Right. If you've read any of the stories, I, yeah. I have. I've heard that story, and I just think again, I don't want to paint the picture that these founders are perfect. We all know the Steve yeah. Jobs stuff, and I'm sure right. everyone is fall- fallible. But again, like you're saying, that's I, I can't help but think that's a tremendous example, <clears throat> because as you say, you you have a guy that cashed out roughly 200 mil from from a, a venture, right? Yeah. Most people would sail off into the sunset and say, "I'm done. I'm yeah. just going to enjoy life." Instead. He founds two enormously ambitious, enormously innovative, enormously challenging companies, roughly at the same time. And as you say, struggled, 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 had to put all of his money into it. So, and and then of course now things look like they're they're developing well, right? Yeah. You know, Tesla is becoming a success. SpaceX looks like it's ticking along. It doesn't seem like he's having trouble getting financing or funding anymore. And it's those examples where people despite the fact that they were going to be brought, you know, they were going to lose all the, this great money they, they made and lose that lifestyle, but they chose to follow, do these things, take these risks because they were passionate about it, because they were committed to it, because they were yep. interested in it. And that is the real 
that's the shining example that I think a lot of people are gaining inspiration from, you know, and you talk with a lot of startup founders. I do, you know, somewhere deep down when it's a cold rainy Tuesday in Shanghai or when things aren't going well, the staff is struggling when they're having those like definitive life changing kind of struggles internally, you know, examples like that squeak through and shine through. And, you know, I know for myself, I know many people I've spoken to, whether it's Musk, Jobs, whomever, right. they find those like guys that just are seemingly non-human, but then you, you learn a bit about them, you know, they're just like you. They're, they're, they're just as human. They get yep. just as scared making the, these risks and taking these risks, but they do it because that's what, that's what gets them off. That's what gives them energy. That's what gives them joy. And that's what right. allows them to release their passion. And that's a, I think those are great um, I, idols to, to have. You know? Absolutely. Um, what kind of mistakes do startups that you've worked with make in the realm that you advise them on? You know, so a lot of right. startups, they build these great products and services, but, right. and they need to, you need to get the word out. I mean, that's one of the, the things startups struggle right. with the most. Yeah. What kind of mistakes do they make in your appraisal? Um, I think, uh, if they're, if they're technical, you know, kind of founders, Sometimes they really struggle with the communication side mm. um, and the communications could be both, you know, communicating what it is their product does right. and, you know, and I call it grandma terms. If grandma can't understand it, you know, it's still too complicated. Right. It needs to be that simple and straightforward. Mm. Um, uh, I think, um, you know, it, again, some of it can be, you know, the type of uh, leader style that they are. Um, you know, some of these guys will be more quiet and sort of reserved and some of them will be more rah-rah and you, you really have to be true to yourself mm -hmm. from that perspective. Don't try to be somebody that you're not, you know, authenticity is thrown around a lot these days for brands, but it's also for leaders. It's right. like, don't, don't get sucked into what everybody else is doing around you, mm -hmm. you know, find your true North and, 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 and stay to that, mm -hmm. you know, f st stay within yourself from that perspective um i think uh yeah you know when you're when you're when you're going out and you're trying to build your business some people i think they they see like the biggest client as 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 like the you know that's the dream and that's the goal mm -hmm. but the reality is if you're too small trying to serve somebody too big it can break you uh, in, in, in ways that, you know, you may not have foreseen. Mm -hmm. I really, you know, try to advise the startups to go after the client sizes that are more fit to who they are as a company at that particular time, right. because you're, you're still going to make mistakes. You yeah. know, you don't have everything working perfectly from a product or service or solution standpoint. Mm -hmm. And so figure out what it is first mm -hmm. at like a smaller scale make sure you can roll it out multiple times build up the process before you go after you know the super big one and you make it in shanghai all kinds of opportunities come to you yeah you know i just had a friend of mine coca-cola came back you know after like a year ago they invited him into the entrepreneur and residence program right and he went through this whole thing and it was like two months and, da -da -da -da, and then all of a sudden nothing right and then a year later it comes back again you're like Hey, you know, we just saw your new startup and then I would love to do work with you. And I'm like, I'm like, you know, these things can happen all the time. Yeah. Right. And as much as I say to him, I'm like, yeah, it's an awesome opportunity. 
are you ready for that opportunity, mm-hmm. right? Or is this the right time to be working with Coca-Cola where, where the size of the company is four people? Yeah. You know, you all your resources will get funneled over there. Yeah. And in and if, you know, they decide to stop or they give up, you know, you've wasted a lot of time and resources and you didn't necessarily get a return from it or you tried to stretch yourself too far and you broke it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, you know, now at the very top, you have a reputation issue, yeah. right? I, I really try to advise that the startups, you know, do it like, you know, I would say slowly but surely scale up. Like first prove that it works right. as, on, on a small customer base as possible. Get a good idea for what impact it's having on the on your customers, right? And how they're finding your right. product or solution useful. Right. I mean, and, and, you know, this is what I say. To you. It's, it's, it's weird because in the U.S. you won't even get the opportunity to go work with Coca-Cola, right? Uh, and, okay. and to, until you've become much more established. But in China, things just happen too fast. Yeah. Right. So sometimes those opportunities come to you and it's like great if you're ready. Yeah. But if you're not ready, you know, and you still try to take that on, like, I mean, I'm all for being ambitious, but you have to be very careful. China, China, one of the biggest challenges for any startup in China is there's more opportunity than you could possibly consume. And how do you remain focused? How do you not get distracted? It's very, very easy to get distracted. A lot distracted. of people will hear that and be very excited by that statement. But I think you're right. I mean, you, you, you're totally right. There is so much opportunity and you have to – picking and choosing which ones are the ones you should go for is a, is a skill you know, that you, you have to develop. And I guess that's part of your role as being a mentor to some of these guys is helping to make those decisions. Yeah, exactly. it, it, it is amazing how many of these huge global conglomerates are now – doing like in-house internal accelerator yeah. programs and entrepreneurs and yeah. residents. I mean, yeah. it's, it's that this, the whole startup phenomenon has got so big that as you mentioned, Coca-Cola and all the big tech companies and a lot of the, you know, a lot of the mainstream non-tech companies, whatever their niche is, you know, they're like, okay, well we, we better devote some resource to yeah. this so that we can, then that's maybe their mechanism for internal innovation, you yeah. know, without bringing it fully doing it fully internally. Yeah. Um, but it, it, it's just amazing. So, uh, for, for those people that want to do those things, I'm, I'm, I'm really stoked that they get so many more opportunities now, whether it is with the big companies, whether it is on their own, whatever. Great. Um, as you were just talking about entrepreneurs in China can often get distracted by the opportunities, right? Mm. Um, you know, for big clients, but I want to speak generally, and maybe you can share with me your yeah. own experience. You're, you know, obviously you've done what you've done and your passion and your experience is what it is. But do you ever get, because there's so many opportunities in China, do you ever get distracted by thinking like, oh, maybe I should go in that direction. Maybe I should go in that direction. Or you see a big opportunity here, like maybe I should do that. Do you find it challenging to stay focused on your core business, passion, interest and, and tune out the, the opportunities that might be available to you? It's, it, uh, it's not easy. Uh, I mean, you know, people are, are, are always asking us, well, I love what you do on this. Can you help me with that? Mm-hmm. And, and you always have to, you know, you have to consider, you know, whether or not it's a one-off, whether or not it's something that can become like a, another business line for you and whether or not, you know, staffing up those, those capabilities is something that you feel comfortable doing. Right. I'll get, I'll give you an example. So we, 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 we started with affiliate 
And we actually sunsetted that business in 2010. So roughly four years after we started, our core business was almost shut down. And the reason for that was that unlike Japan and Korea and Europe and the United States, China never developed into a long tail Chris Anderson market. Mm -hmm. it, it became a very big head around you know, Alibaba in particular, right. right? Almost all the deals were coming from Alibaba itself and they don't need a third party to be in between. Right. They pulled all the websites directly to them. And so we effectively got disintermediated, mm -hmm. you know, and luckily we'd already moved into the paid search business by that time. But, you know, we had, we had clients drag us from paid search into SEO. So that was a pretty easy step to build that. That wasn't a huge stretch mm -hmm. in terms of focus. It was all search. It was just something that was paid and some of it was natural, right? right. Unpaid. How do you get ranked? But then the, 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 the big, I would say step change for us as a company being a very data-driven marketing company was in, in SEO, we started seeing social media content kept popping up into the results. And, you know, fundamentally I felt like, well, we, we have to be a part of this at some level. Mm -hmm. And you look over, you know, sometimes I'll look overseas for validation. Are search companies getting into social? Some of them were, right. you know, that gave me a sense, okay, maybe, maybe we can extending there. But the, but the challenge was, you know, even SEO is kind of technical mm -hmm. and can be a little geeky, you know, data-driven. Search is very data-driven. Yeah. Affiliate's very data-driven. Social's creative. It's creative content, mm -hmm. right? It's, 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 you know, it's like branding. Mm -hmm. Whereas most of what we were doing was much more focused on marketing, right. measurable improvement over time. That's the whole Darwin, right? You right. kind of idea. Uh -huh. Evolving your marketing over a period of time. So, could a data geeky company get creative? This was the big question mark, mm -hmm. right? But affiliate was basically not going anywhere. It was dying. Uh -huh. And so I had a choice at that point. And I approached the leader of that business. I said, look, I think we need to try social. And, you know, and I, and I, you know, I think probably the team you have right now is not the team that's going to, that can do that business in the future. But if you're willing to give it a shot, I'm willing to give you a shot, you know, to, to lead that business. Mm -hmm. And in all honesty, like the first iteration, we terrible, you know, just not, 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 not even creative at all. Right. And so it was, you know, you go in to pitch and yeah, no, thanks very much. <laughs> right. You're great on search. Don't come back again on social. And then, you know, next iteration, we had, a, you know, influx of new people, new hires and so on and so forth. And that next iteration, we got, we got some, we got, we got an initial layer. Right. But we were still finding that 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 at some levels, like mostly we work with, you know, multinational type of clients mm -hmm. that in certain multinational industries, they're like, mm, no, no, not you're still not as creative, right. you know, as we want you to be. But third iteration of the team brought in and suddenly you start winning clients like Armani and Valentino. And if you can hit the luxury guys on, on in, in social, they have the, the tightest, most high demands in right. terms of what the content needs to be. Yeah. It may not be the, the most creative because it's more about being on brand, mm -hmm. right? Following a very, very specific tone, style, delivery, right? right? But if you can do that, you've, you've, you've kind of reached a certain level that's now, I feel like, on par with the service level that we have on paid search and, and SEO. So we've got these three different levels, but that one was a risk mm -hmm. 
I mean, it could have completely failed, right? And we were following, you know, a trend. We got in, you know, probably four years ago, right? Or five years ago, four and a half years ago. So Weibo was the thing. Timely. You know, also. right. It was timely. Yeah. But again, we watched it sort of happening into search results. We really got our input to move into social from search results that, that you know, stuff overseas like Facebook or Twitter or actually being incorporated into Google. Right. And we figured we saw already the BBS in China was massive. Mm-hmm. Right. Companies like Sam Fleming and CIC had been crawling that stuff forever. But now with Weibo and Weixin, eventually Weixin, you know, you had these completely new platforms, which were transforming it, right? Mm-hmm. Making it much more front end and all the clients knew they had to be there, right? Right. And the thing with our business is you want to have the greatest share of client possible. You, you know, if you have one business, one business line, like just say paid search, they can always find somebody else who can do paid search. Mm-hmm. If you have paid search and SEO, now you've made it much harder because there's not that many companies who are good at both. Mm-hmm. If you had a third one, you make it very hard for them to move because they will have to compromise on something. Right. It's, there are, at least in this market, I would say, mm. there are no other companies who can do all three at the same level that we do it at. Right. Right. There is There are companies out there who are very good on one and say they can do either of the other two. Mm-hmm. But they're just saying that because they just want the business. Sure. Right. We've been able to, I would say, penetrate with each one of those individually at the highest levels. And so now in clients where we have all three, that makes us a more stable type of business. But again, it was a huge risk. Right. So it, so- it sounds like regarding, you know, opportunities that you might observe throughout the course of doing whatever work you're doing, pick the ones that are not such a huge leap from your, the, the competencies that you've already established yourself in, right? That, like, I mean, cause it's not like you're, going outside your industry because I, with the question I generally meant, like in China, you look around everywhere. It's like opportunity. Right. Right. And how do you keep that focus on like your core competencies? So it sounds like you're saying, you know, keep it kind of in the family because that's what you know. And those are the connections that you already and networks you already have, but you know, take some risks and, and, and give things a try within that, within a relatively close relationship right right and also it's like you know there, there are other things that are closely related but we we rejected them for one reason or another because we said you know can we really be can we really be unique and different can right. we really stand out from the market like we always well, can you help help build us a website i'm like yeah there's so many companies who build websites right and are we going to be able to be you know we could say well we can build seo into it but yeah. everybody who builds websites say they build seo into it so you know, it, it, it was one of those things where we said, yeah, no, we're not going to do that because we just don't feel, we feel like it's too commoditized, right? right? You know, as, as a service level, it's very hard to differentiate and therefore we'll just be competing on price, which, and, and, and every single time it's a completely new project. Mm-hmm. It's not as much of a process. I mean, there is a process approach to developing websites, but clients are like, oh, I like that. I don't like right, that. Right. Right. So it can be very, very back and forth and, and, and. Chews up a lot of resources. Exactly. We we prefer businesses that have retainer based, you know, kind of client, I would say, interactions. Right. Right. Where, you know, we we maybe have a call once a week, maybe once a month, depending on like the service, and and most of it is operation internal efficiencies. Right. Right. But if it's like constant like back and forth, which some campaigns are in social, Mm -hmm. in all honesty, 
those things are more challenging to manage. Yeah. Right. I and we, 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 we don't find those as scalable. So right. we try to stay away from them. Right. Cool. Well, TR, you've been very gracious with your time today. A few questions at the end that I ask yeah. everyone. Um, so I'll hit you with them now. First is how do you define success? Um, for, for me, I would say, you know, success starts with, uh, finding some satisfaction in what you are doing. Mm -hmm. If you're feeling like you're making an impact. I mean, one of the reasons I love digital marketing is that like I do something and I can see the impact almost immediately. Right. That was critical for me. Like I need that feedback loop mm -hmm. to feel like something is happening. Right. Or, yeah. or, or to have some sort of evaluation on whether or not I'm doing something that adds value. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and I would say, you know, being able to help others, you know, to achieve success makes me feel successful. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, I feel like, you know, you know, I wrote a long time ago, I created like a, a personal mission. And in that statement, one of the things that, that, that still resonates with me to this day is, you know, find a way to make an impact even if the impact is only limited to one person mm -hmm. in the world. If you're impacting one other person in a positive way, then you've had success, right? right? Um, so, yeah, I, I would say I, I mostly define success as like, you know, coming down to what type of impact am I able to have, mm -hmm. you know, through my business and through my interactions uh, interpersonally with people that I work with. Nice, nice. So now can I get three pieces of advice um, from you for people, just general advice for people that want to perform better in life? And it can be anything, diet, fitness, technology, productivity, whatever. Um, okay. Uh, first would be uh, from communication standpoint. Um, communicate verbally and confirm in the written word. Uh, and please, please explain. Yeah. So <laughs> – uh, first of all, like it's much more productive to have a quick phone call mm -hmm. than it is to uh, send a bunch of emails where people, you know, are bound to misinterpret tone right. or, or, or all of these other things. Uh, you know, so whether it's through social media or email, the written word is highly interpretable, meaning that sometimes it can lead to very bad interpretations. Yeah. And when you are speaking to somebody, they can hear your voice, they understand the tone, and you have a little bit more chance to pull information back and forth much faster. It just is more productive. Once you've come to an agreement as to what it is you both talked about, Get in writing. <laughs> you write it down in the email just to confirm what was said. Right. That is what email and, and the written word is good for. It is a horrible way to communicate. And thankfully... You know, it's going away in terms of email, Slack, and, and I think even WeChat basically is replacing this. But still, a lot of that communication is written, yeah. right? I don't recommend you try to communicate, influence, motivate through the written word. Right. It's, it's highly susceptible to failure. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, the show Key and Peel in the, in oh, the yeah, US. Yeah. It's two comedians, right? Yeah. And they have a skit where they're messaging back and forth, right? They're right. both at their respective houses and they, yeah. they had planned to like hang out that day. And one, one of them's like, Hey asshole, what are you doing today? And the other one's like, asshole, I'm, I'm just relaxing. You know, and they go back and forth. And one of them is totally like chilled and just trying to 
communicate right. and the other one is interpreting his messages like really offensively right so yes yeah and i think i think i think that's i've never heard that advice before but i think it's it's actually very very apt because i mean we all have in our daily lives experiences of communicating via text whether we're too lazy to pick up the phone we think we'll be you know so black we'll be drawn into a long conversation or whatever but the miscommunication that happens as a result is is pretty astounding. So yeah, important communication, I would say. It's right, okay right. for like small little things. If you're in a meeting, it's not convenient to take a call. Fine, understood. Right. But for anything important, like it's just so much faster and more productive to have a phone call, yeah. right? And then afterwards, you document it with the written word yeah. somewhere else. I like that. I like yeah. that. Number two. Number two um, is be a good listener. It's so critical, I, I would say, going back to the success point is really understanding people's motivations, right? You know, I work in a, in a, in a client-facing business. You know, the questions that, that I like to ask my clients is, okay, fine, wh wh what do you need to get your bonus? You know, what, what, what are you being measured on? What's going to be successful for you? Mm -hmm. Let's work backwards, you know, from what's going to be successful for you. I want to listen, all right? I can talk. Anybody can talk. Right. Some people talk way too much and they, 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 they don't even wait for the other person to finish saying what they're going to say mm -hmm. before they're interrupting them or they're waiting for their next chance to talk. People who listen perform much better because they actually understand mm -hmm. what the other party is looking for and then can respond to them. Right? Yeah. This is also you know, a geeky way. To me, this is why search engine marketing works so well is that like the search engine responds exactly – at the moment that you have a question about something, but it's responding to the question. It's not trying to tell you, oh, you should go buy something. Right. Right. It's saying, oh, I'm interested in mobile phones. Boom. Whole list of like responses that is related, mm -hmm. relevant to what's being said. But you have to listen first. Yeah. Listen first is so important. I think that's also a big component of building genuine relationships with people because people can tell if you're trying, if you're actively trying to understand what they're saying versus, as you said, just waiting for their chance to speak. You yeah. know? And I, in my communication with people, that is, that is huge. You can tell right out the get go what, what type of communicator you're dealing with. But it's I mean, it's if you want to build those genuine relationships, you really have to make an attempt to understand the person you're trying to communicate with. Listen, understand and then respond in a relevant way. And I Another piece of good advice. Number three. Number three um, would be um, start start early if possible. Um, you know, try to get. Uh, I I try to like my my habits around around uh, my mornings have been fixed from when I was a young boy, mm -hmm. and my mom used to always cook these like massive breakfasts, you know, for me, and so I was used to just eating a ton, you know, in the morning. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I feel like the morning is kind of, especially here in China, is, is, is my productive time. Right. You know, uh, I, I get up early, I get my daughter ready for school, I have a big breakfast, and then as soon as I shutter her off, I get to the office and I usually have one and a half of two hours of uninterrupted time to think. Yeah. You know, uh, Peter Drucker, you know, is, is the, the, you know, the forefather of the knowledge worker, mm -hmm. right? The Effective Executive is one of the best books, even to this day, you know, that I've ever been given. Mm -hmm. And he talks about having these blocks of uninterrupted time. For me, the morning in China is the best uninterrupted time. As I go on through the day, 
I get more tired. And this is why I don't encourage my staff to work late. Right. Because I feel like most people's productivity is just continuously going down through the day. Yeah. So you have important tasks, important things like documents that you need to prepare, you know, big idea, you know, kind of thinking, do it early, mm-hmm. you know, because once the day gets started, you know, people start calling and you have to respond. Your day just starts getting broken up. Yeah. It's very hard. But if you can start early and get that stuff done before the day starts. And another thing. I don't touch my email box until 11 o'clock in the morning. Right. And I tell everybody I'm going to spend about 15 minutes at most in there. Mm-hmm. 11 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 6 o'clock. I'm just checking and I'm only looking for things that are important, mm-hmm. you know, and urgent. If it's, if it's, or I should say important, but not urgent. If, if it's important and urgent, I expect people to call me. Right. I don't, I don't want to have to go find it in an email, mm-hmm. right? Or if there is an email reference, you better call me and tell me, mm-hmm. right? Otherwise, if it's important and not urgent, I'll respond in 24 hours, right? right? But I just, you know, I have this thing. I'm not an email person. Yeah. I find it to be the least productive. Black hole of time. Yeah. yeah. And I've learned over the years to just spend as little time as possible there. Yeah. I'm a big morning routine geek myself. Um and you, you pretty well explained what yours was. What is this big meal you have in the morning, just out of curiosity? Oh, uh, I, I start off with at least one or two glasses of orange juice. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have usually two to three eggs, uh, you know, usually an omelet. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's it. I mean, I don't, I don't do uh, a lot of carbs. Right. You know, so I used to have like, you know, potatoes and toast and everything else. Is reason for that? Um, I just feel like that the, you know, I'm more sensitive to energy levels as I've gotten older. Yeah. Um, and so any starches I know will, will, will turn into sugar and will just crash me. Yeah. Um, and, um, yeah. And also coffee, you know, I'll, I'll usually have, you know, one coffee, you know, in the morning, I try not to overdo it. You know, you can over caffeinate and then it just, you know, that leads to really bad, I'd say productivity as well. But You know, a coffee, a couple glasses of orange juice, a couple of eggs for like the protein. Sure. And that, you know, that pretty much that fills me out. And then nighttime, by by contrast, I basically eat almost nothing. I'm not a dinner eater. I mean, if I have a function, of course, I'm going to eat. Right. But but otherwise, you know, I may have like a beer. At night, <laughs> right. My, my my carbs will come from like a late night beer or two. Yeah. Right. And and, and it's just different. That's that's for me. It's it's also it's just been generational yeah I, i've grown up that way you know i used to have dinners at night but but now work you know i finish seven or or, or after my wife and the kid want to eat earlier at six o'clock i don't want to eat cold food right and and i just don't have the same appetite at night so i i just sort of i have big breakfast normal lunch small dinner or nothing i asked the food question because it's it's an increasingly common hack i guess you could call it whereby a lot of people, if they want to maintain their focus and their clarity and their energy levels throughout the day, will avoid carbs and sugars in the morning, right? And yeah. focus on proteins, healthy fats, you know, and things like that. And it's something I follow myself, and I, I find it a very noticeable improvement. You know, you don't get that mid-afternoon kind of lull and crash. Yeah. You're just kind of able to stay even keel most of the day. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, if you could make a phone call to your 20-year-old self, what would you tell your younger self? Um, okay, younger? so this is my back to the future question. <laughs> yeah. Um, so um, I would get in the vehicle with Doc Holliday, and I would go back to a 20-year-old self. I would be in Boston, 
And I would say, um, I'm sorry that that t-shirt business was such a disaster, but you know, go start another business right away. And the reason I would say that is that I think the, you know, this, is, this gets back to, um, there's a great book, uh, you know, the history of, uh, you know, of, of Henry Adams, mm -hmm. Henry Adams biography talks about the, the, the importance of, of experience of life experience as an education. Right. It's the, his, his biography is called The Education of Henry mm -hmm. Adams, and it all talks about all these experiences. There is no greater experience that you can have yeah. than starting a business, even if you fail. Because as long as you learn mm -hmm. in the process what not to do in the future, then you take that forward, whether or not you're in a corporate environment or you're in a you know, smaller startup environment. Yeah. And I think you know, the risk profile is so low when you're, when you're 20. You don't have any responsibility except for you. you. Yeah. Right. You know, and Elon Musk is another great example. He's like, you know, I figured out how little was required for me to sustain myself. Yeah. And I got it down to something like, I forget, it was like 30 bucks a month or 50, some, some insanely small amount of money. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I think that's such a great way to look, you know, at, at the opportunity of why you should start a business mm -hmm. or why you should be involved in founding a business. And, you know, when you have such low risk and, and the opportunity to learn is so high, you're never going to learn more than when you're in your own business. Yeah, and there's no comparison between the theoretical learnings in business that you could get in school versus the real thing. That, I mean, that it's, there it's just isn't. Day, right? Exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, best advice you've ever received, not from your future self. Right. Um, actually, you know, it was a very counterintuitive piece of advice um, that, that I received, and it was uh, through, through a book recommendations. So somebody had uh, turned me on to this guy who used to work at the Gallup polls, uh, this book called Strengths Finder. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I went through and I did all It's like you do all these exercises and it's supposed to help you identify, you know, what you're really good at. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, by contrast, also what you're not so good at. And I think up until that point, you know, I'd always felt like, you know, well, if you've got some, you know, deficiencies, you know, you need to focus your energy on, on fixing the deficiencies. Right. And actually the research proves otherwise. Focus on your strengths. Focus on your strengths. Yeah. It's like, because like, if you can improve your strengths, you can have like an exponential impact. Right. Whereas when you're working on your deficiencies, you know, you're, you're really usually having like an incremental. Just getting up to par. Right. right. Not to mention not really enjoying yourself in the process. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Exactly. So it's very counterintuitive because people are always told, oh, you're weak at this, you're weak at that, you're weak at this. Mm -hmm. and, and, and people's natural mm -hmm. instinct is that, oh man, I need to improve all those different things. Whereas if they took the same amount of energy that they were focusing on fixing, you know, the things that they're not good at and they put it on continuing, you know, to grow their strengths, so much more powerful right. in terms of impact and value that's created. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that to me was a huge like wow moment. And it also got me to stop worrying about all the things that I'm not good at, yeah. you know, and just be like, yeah, I'm not good at this. I'm not good at that. I'm not good at that. So, but I'm awesome at, right. But I'm really good at this. Yeah. You know, this is where I can do, this is where I can do good. Yeah. Um, favorite quote. Um, going back to our star Wars theme, my favorite quote, it comes from Yoda. Of course. <laughs> do or do not. There is no try, right? <laughs> That's, you know, in the reality startup, Oh, you know, well, I could have maybe should have, what did that? No, just do it. Yeah. Right. You know, not, not, I mean, literally, you know, everybody can, can talk and yeah. everybody can say, well, I could have done this. I could have done that. I should have done this. I should have done that. Look, stop talking about it and just do it. Yeah. You know, that, that's, you know, even for like when I teach the, the MBAs at Siebs, I'm like, how many people, you know, think they want to do it? I'm like, 
I, I usually out of a class of 50, I'll get like three or four people, mm-hmm. you know, because it's very easy to just move into the corporate environment out of business school. Sure. I mean, you've got these loans and everything else. Like everybody told me I was crazy. Yeah, right? It's the you path know? that's most it's, clear and open right. for you, right? But, you know, you know, you got you got to just try it. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, and again, as Yoda says, you don't even try, you just do it. Yeah. Right. As soon as you say, I'm going to try to do it, you're already couching yourself. Yeah. Right. Whereas, you know, and there's a certain, you know, there's a certain psychological trigger that happens when it says, I'm going to do it. I'm committing to do it. I'm not putting any hedges whatsoever on this. I'm going to do it. Yeah. Fine. You don't do it and you failed. At least you committed to doing it. But as soon as you say, oh, I'm just going to try it, you, you are not one committing door, to it. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, so we've talked about this a bit on on recent podcasts, and I, I think it's possibly one of the most important components of starting a business or even constructing a life on your own terms that's going to make you happy. I think it's super important if you're going to take that attitude to set your compass first, right? Mm-hmm. So that you aren't committing to things that are outside of your, you know, that you're not super True. passionate about, not outside of your competency. But once you've done that, I mean. I, Yoda hits it on the head every time, of course, but it's tremendous advice, you know, because as, as, as you say, it's, it's so, it's so apt. When, if, if you leave the door open, if you say, I'm just going to try, see what it's like, you will find a way to get out of it. Absolutely. You will find, you know, through the ups and downs, the, through the experiences, you'll find verification of why you shouldn't have done this in the first place. You'll find reasons to turn around and go back. Absolutely. Which is why I think just ripping away that safety net or jumping out of that plane and finding the chute on the way down is, is, is probably is. the best approach, right? It is. It is. King. Um, person you admire most. Um, you know, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to change my answer on this one. I was originally thinking, you know, I, I'm, I'm personally uh, impressed by people who, who really put like a movement in, in front of themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, definitely from a historical perspective, uh, you know, people like Gandhi or Mandela, mm-hmm. who through nonviolent means and through continuous like perseverance, I mean, persecuted, thrown in jail forever, just continuous, you know, commitment, you know, to an ideal is, is an extremely inspiring, you know, thing to do. But again, I think I'm going to, I'm going to come back, and, and, and reference, you know, I would say Elon Musk, you know, the facts, you know, what he is pursuing from a mission perspective. Yes, these are big companies and they've raised a lot of money now and, 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 and they're, they're not like little startups mm-hmm. anymore. But he, he took a tremendous personal financial, you know, c- comfort risk, yeah. you know, going after these huge ideas. He literally risked everything to make them happen and and what he's pursuing are things that are you know huge things for society right they're just huge you know if he can if he can realize the things that he's setting out to achieve it's going to just change the way we live yeah and 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 for the better i think for the you know truly for the better of the the environment for sure Mm -hmm. and to me that's just a phenomenally you know, awesome thing, yeah. you know, to be in pursuit of. Totally. And as we touched on earlier, you know, of course, he's going to have his impacts in the things he's directly involved in, SpaceX, Tesla, whatever else he, he does. Yeah. But I think maybe even a bigger impact in the example he's he's setting for future entrepreneurs, Absolutely. as you're just referring to, the 
And as we talked about, the example of not necessarily focusing on the financial reward, the example of taking risks, the example of trying to make the world a better place, the example of dreaming big. I mean, yeah. these are hugely, hugely influential examples coming from a hugely influential person at a time when people are more and more open to actually committing to these things that exactly. we were just talking about. So I, I think that may be one of his lasting uh, impacts. True. Okay, that's it with the questions. The last bit is just a quick word association. Okay. Put you on the spot. All yep. right? Don't think, just answer. Branding. Apple. Success. Musk. Steve Jobs. Uh, distorted reality. <laughs> China. Um, scale. Fun. Family. Future. Full of possibility. Darwin Marketing. Evolving. Nice. Well, TR, I very much appreciate the time you give me today. I know we went uh, probably way over what we had uh, anticipated or planned to, but uh, I didn't want to interrupt you on a lot of the, the great things you were talking about. Is there anywhere, any information you want to put out for people to get in touch with Darwin, yourself, if people are interested in reaching out to you guys for whatever reason? Uh, I would say uh, if you're interested in the business side, you can find me on LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. um, that's probably the easiest way. Um, you can find me on Twitter, at NetChina. Uh, I'm at Weixin, T-R-H-China. And, you know, personally, Facebook. Right. And the website for Darwin is darwinmarketing.com. Darwinmarketing.com. Right, cool. And, of course, you can get at us at uh, techinshanghai.com or at techinshanghai on Twitter. TR, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. And we'll see you guys next time. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Tech in Shanghai podcast. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe to us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at Tech in Shanghai for everything tech from Shanghai and China. See you next time.